0: Well, it's great to be back with you again. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to join with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we celebrated Easter, and we got to celebrate and remember what Christ has done in conquering our enemies, in rescuing us from the curse of sin, and in doing so, He did it by living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved, And raising from the dead, thereby making him the sufficient and acceptable sacrifice to God on our behalf. And we found out that that changes everything. And it really, really does change everything. And it's because of the resurrection that when Christ gave a great commission to his disciples, it wasn't just instructions that we got from a teacher. It was marching orders from the king of the universe. And as the king ushered in this kingdom that cannot be shaken, we know that it's coming from the king of the universe because he started out by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this king presented himself before the ancient of days victorious, and he was given a name that was above every name. So when he speaks, we listen. And... We listen because he's the highest authority in the room. And as we pick back up in Ephesians, we're going to see that Paul has been unpacking for us the implications of that victory. What does it mean that Christ is risen for the dead? What does that mean for us? And we see great things. And it's important to note, as we, so we can understand the scripture as we dig in today, the distinction that scripture makes between the indicative and the imperative. The, all over Scripture, especially in Paul's letters, you see an indicative, a statement about who we are, and then you see an imperative, a command on how to live in light of that statement. And so Paul has been laying out his indicatives, right? He tells us in chapter 1 that this plan to reconcile the church to God was set before the foundations of the world. And in chapter 2, we saw that these rea- the realities of salvation, that we've been rescued from the wrath of God ourselves and the grip of Satan, have now made us into this new people, this new humanity, this new creation, the body of Christ. And in chapter 3, he tells us that this mystery that has been laid out throughout history has been revealed to us In the gospel, and it's because of that mystery now that we have access to the throne of God. And in light of all that, we enter into chapter four with instructions then of what it looks like to be citizens in this kingdom. And Paul lays out two things for us to consider today as we dig into the passage. First, we're going to see how we walk. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 3. And second, we're going to see then what we're united to. So how we walk and what we're united to. So let's begin in verse 1, chapter 4 of Ephesians. We're going to read through verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for central prayers. I thank you for your word. Would you please open eyes and change hearts and strengthen through the power of your word? Would you help us to understand this passage? And may we fall more in love with who you are because of your son. We love you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see today that Paul's going to unpack in chapter four in this letter is how we walk. Notice how he begins in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So he starts out by saying walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul here transitions from everything that he has said in chapters one through three, now giving you an indication. He starts with a therefore to let you know he's moving from the indicative to the imperative. He's moving from the statements about who we are and what God has done and what that means for us now into, okay, so how do you then live in light of that reality? So he urges us, that matter. Remember back in chapter 2, we introduced this idea of the word walk. Here, Paul is going to use that word again. It's the same word that Paul used to describe our state before Christ when we were walking after the prince of the power of the air, that we were in lockstep with Satan following to our death. And then Christ came in and now we walk after Christ. We took a 180, we turned and now we follow Jesus. This is the exact picture of what repentance looks like to turn from your sin and turn to God. This is the beautiful picture that we see when God calls his disciples like Matthew and simply says, follow me. This is a walking, this is a life, this is a marching after the one who we see as our master. And we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. In other words, he's telling you to live out this role that you have been given or in another way to walk in in the position that you have been named for. So I'm a big Razorback fan, but I typically don't watch baseball, just to be honest, not because I don't think they're good, just because I I tend to be the Razorback fan that thinks baseball is the thing in between football and basketball, right? But in light of all the success that we had Last year, I got caught up and started watching the baseball team. And The next thing I know, I'm watching the College World Series on my phone and I'm caught up. And if I'm honest, I didn't want to do this because I didn't want to get emotionally involved again because I know how my Razorbacks are. I know that we are absolute experts in snatching victory or snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. We do it every single time I could name. Tons of things. Reggie Fish and Clint Sterner's fumble at Tennessee. And, and I could say all these things and you're all groaning and glaring at me. But you know it's true. That's, that's our history as Razorback fans. We know even if it's going well, it's just a matter of time. So I didn't want to commit myself to the baseball team. But they kept winning and it kept getting more exciting. And then it became the thing that everybody was doing. And so I'm watching the College World Series. And we remember, in that moment, a foul ball in the air and three guys all vying for hero position, only for it to drop to the ground. And in that moment, the opposing team gets a second chance. And the rest, as we could say, is Razorback history. I can hear it in your groans. But if you hear people talk about this moment, they're going to tell you and they're going to start to get in arguments about positioning, right? That in the baseball field, there are certain sections that are your area. And if the ball comes into your area, it's your assignment, right? And then there's a process that that goes in order. Even if you're throwing someone out of the plate, the, the outfielder doesn't chunk it to home plate, even though he probably could, he hits it to the cutoff man and the cutoff man hits it to home plate. There's order and role and assignment and position. And in that moment, there's three guys trying to be the hero, not worried about what their position is. And it costs them the game here. Paul is telling you to walk according to your role. Walk according to your position. What have you been called to? Who are you, church? Walk in a way that fits the position you have been given. And Paul begins the discussion by telling us to live in light of who we are, what we've been named for, to know our role and walk in it. And then he gives you five characteristics on how exactly you're supposed to do that. The first, he says, with all humility. So you can't be prideful and humble at the same time. It calls for you to take the focus off yourself. But the cool thing here, and if I can just nerd out on the the linguistics for just a second, the cool thing about this list of five characteristics is it's a grouping. And in this grouping, Paul is going to continue to build on one another with the next point, that we're going to understand what humility is in light of gentleness and gentleness in light of patience and patience in light of bearing. They all go together and you can't have one without the other. So as he continues and says, with all humility and gentleness, the only way we understand what it really looks like to be humble is to understand what it means to be gentle. Everybody following me? That's the way we pursue humility. Humility. The way we kill our pride and we kill our self-centeredness is by pursuing gentleness and community with one another. Which leads us to the next characteristic, patience. What does it look like to be humble? What does it look like to be gentle? It looks like being patient with one another. The old school way of saying this is have long suffering. And the reason that that word long suffering used to be used in the place of patience is because it described how it was that you were to be patient. You're supposed to suffer long with someone or something. Because we understand something huge, that patience only comes through circumstance. That's why you hear people kind of grumble and be a little snarky when they talk about patience and don't pray for patience. Why? Because, you know, a situation is going to come that's going to force you to be patient. Right. That coworker, Little Rock Traffic, your kids, your spouse. There's going to be that scenario, that situation that is going to pull out the self-centeredness, pull out the pride, pull out the sin in you and realize you're not nearly as cool as a cucumber as you thought you were. Patience. You can't have patience without circumstances. And oftentimes it's in the circumstances that patience is produced. Isn't that what Paul tells the Romans in chapter five? That we Rejoice in our suffering because why? Because suffering produces endurance, and Endur- endurance produces hope, right? But even in that, Paul tells you how to be patient by leading you to the next characteristic and not leaving us in the dark. He gives us another characteristic to follow and unpack when he says, You're patient by bearing with one another. In love, this is what it looks like to walk in humility and to be gentle with one another, and how you can have patience and circumstances with one another by bearing with one another in love. So what does that look like? Well, if you haven't learned by now in life people and by people I mean, you and I, because we are people are messy and difficult. Even you and I, despite your best efforts, were messy, were difficult. But here's the deal. Christ loved us anyway. And it was in our messiness and it's in our messiness and in our it was in our difficulty and in our difficulty currently that he loves you so much so that he was willing to give his life to help you save yourself from your messiness and your difficulty. So here, this new hum- humanity that Paul is telling us about. We walk out this new identity. We do so with humility. Because pride does nothing but feed our flesh. We do so with humility gentleness because being harsh with someone has never really gotten you where you wanted to be in the relationship has it we do so with patience because while you may not be in the season that that person is in it's just a matter of time before you're going to be struggling and you're going to wish that someone was patient with your stubborn hard-headed self by definition, this is what it looks like to bear with one another. It's like you're spotting someone at the gym, that you're holding a little bit of that weight so that it doesn't crush them. You're there as the safety net. But even in that, you're holding a little bit of the weight and you're letting go of a little bit at the same time so that you can strengthen them. So eventually they don't need you to spot at that weight level. They can then carry the weight on their own. You're bearing with one another. You're holding on. You're carrying some of the weight while they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with, even if what they're dealing with gets on your last nerves. And you do it how? In love. We're all so quick to think that what a person needs most of the time is tough love. I need to tell them about themselves. I need to make sure they understand how they're screwing up. Right? But that's not what the scripture tells you. It tells you to bear in love. Paul calls the Ephesians and by extension, he calls us not just to love, but to agape. This is a certain type of love that the the Greek unpacks, this unconditional, unmerited, never-ending love. This is not what we're used to. And be honest, this is not something we can produce. Gage cannot agape you. Now, the Spirit, through Gage, he can agape you. But left to myself, this is not something I'm going to be able to muster up on my own because I'm going to constantly want to kind of pivot towards writing you off. You burn me enough, I'm done. You're too hard to work with, you're too difficult to be around, it takes too much effort to love you, I'm out. But here, Paul calls us to bear with one another in Agape. Which leads to three observations I want us to see about this cluster here. First, these are not things that can be done in isolation. It's impossible to know if you're actually being humble, if you're being gentle, if you're being patient, and if you're bearing with anyone by yourself. Impossible to know that. So this kills any notion of individual Christianity. This kills any notion of trying to do this so-called thing called Christianity outside the covenant community. You can try. You can call it Christianity all you want. You can say things like, I mean, I'm not really religious. I'm just more spiritual. But when you get to this text and you have to deal with these imperatives and you have to deal with passages that give you one another's, you can't do one another by yourself. It's impossible. You have to do this in covenant community. I mean, you may figure out some sort of way to get traction every once in a while, but for the most part, you'll just be spinning your wheels. And eventually trying to do this by yourself, you'll just pivot back to self-preservation. You'll find a reason not to do it at all. The first thing we need to observe is this can't be done in isolation. Second, this can't be done outside the gospel. It's because we understand the truth in chapters 1 through 3 that we're able to hear the application of the gospel in 4 through 6. If you haven't faced the reality of your sin and its offensiveness before a holy and righteous God and realize that you need a savior and need to turn from your sin and turn to God. Then this idea of being humble and gentle and patient and bearing is going to make no sense to you at all. So you can't hear this. In isolation, and you can't hear this outside of the gospel. And lastly, you can't do this without the Spirit. Just like you can't understand why anyone would want these characteristics outside the gospel, you can't muster any of these outside of the Spirit. The flesh is never going to urge you to be humble, right? No, it's going to teach you to be prideful, to look out for you. For self-care, it's never going to push you to be humble, gentle, patient, or bear with one another. It's always going to justify your pride, your harshness, your short temper, and your willingness to write someone off. Just like when you can't, we can't save ourselves by good works, we can't accomplish the fruit of the gospel outside of the Spirit. So Paul closes this first part of teaching us how to walk by telling us that citizens of the kingdom are, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So in verse four, he's going to start by telling us that we are a body. But before he does that, he does something really cool. He tells you that we should be eager, that is, have some sort of sense of urgency to maintain. Another way to say maintain is to observe, guard, protect the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The cool thing about the word bond here is it could be translated sinew or fetter. So sinew, if you don't know what sinews are, they are the ligaments And the tendons that connect your muscles to your bones. Literally, Paul is telling you this body that you have been given is knit together and enabled to move by the bond of shalom that Christ has brought to you by his own blood. This is the. Same use of the word sinew as in Ezekiel 37, when God calls Ezekiel to prophesy over a valley of dry bones. And as he speaks to the dry bones, the dry bones get up and they start assembling together. And then it says that they were given sinew and flesh, that they were assembled into a person. And then the spirit came from the four corners of the world and breathed life into these bodies. And all of a sudden it says that there was an army before Ezekiel of the people of God. Or it could be translated fetter. And I was so thankful that we sang, come thou fount, because I had this in my notes. So it's just funny the way the spirit works there. Fetter, like what's used in the verse when it says, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. A fetter is the metal that makes up chains that are used in shackles for a prisoner. How did Paul begin the letter? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Here, Paul wants you to see that this new creation that God has made, a body that was dead, has now been raised because Christ has been raised. And this body has been knit together with each ligament and tendon sealed to the bone by the spirit through the shalom or peace that Jesus made between us And God, a peace purchased by his very own blood. And now we are so united, so constrained to one another and to the triune God that we are like prisoners. And Paul is like a dad with a toddler holding us by the hands, teaching us how to walk. But to really understand what he means When he says we have an urgency to protect and guard this unity that we've been sealed in, we need to understand, secondly, what we've been united to. Starting in verse 4, it says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. As citizens of the kingdom, we have to know what our charter is. What's our mission? What are we about? What are we doing now that we're in this kingdom that can't be shaken? And Paul does this in such a way that we see the Trinity at work in the life of the church. First, with the Spirit. It says there's one body In one spirit. Again, Paul using this analogy of body, he uses this every time he's getting ready to tell you about your gifts and how the church functions. That's what Dan is going to deal with next week as he talks about this. King that has come and he has captives in his train and he's giving gifts to men every single time that Paul gets ready to tell you about the gifts and how the church should function together as a body. He's going to use this analogy of a body. He does it here. He does it in Romans. He does it in first Corinthians every single time, but even more vital than that. He wants you to see that without each member of this body, you would be lacking. If you're handicapped in some way, it's because there's a member of your body that is not functioning the way it should be. And the same is true for the church. We need each and every one of us to be moving and mobilized as citizens of the kingdom. But even more than that, without the spirit being in our lives, this body will be dead. Going back to that Old Testament reference with Ezekiel, it wasn't until the breath of God entered into the lungs of these bodies that they became alive. So too, it's the Spirit that instructs us and enables us to walk in new identity and we understand that through studying His Word. This is also why we need to be extremely cautious when we hear people say things like, well, God spoke to me or the spirit revealed to me. Or if they, in the introduction of their books, say things to you like, I wanted something more than the word. So I developed this book. Something more than the God breathed spirit inspired, authoritative word of God. We've got to be cautious. But not only do we see that there's one body and one spirit, we see that there is one hope And one Lord, just like the previous groupings in one through three here again, Paul is giving you a series of groupings, letting you know that you can't have one without the other, that they each build off of one another. Notice what he goes on to say, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What's the one hope, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the one Lord. He's the second person of Trinity at work in this unity. We are a people of one hope, not many. We have a responsibility to one another to time and time again point one another to this one hope. There's nothing else that'll bring us hope not our performance, not our rule keeping, not Jesus plus our traditions. Not Jesus plus prosperity. Bailey, thank you for praying that this morning. Nothing will bring us hope. The only hope that we have for being rescued from the brokenness in us and around us is Jesus Christ. We have one Lord. His name is King Jesus. And he calls the shots and we follow him. But we also have one faith. Notice how it builds on one another. We have one faith and one baptism. Now, this is difficult for us to understand in 21st century America because we have different churches on every corner around us, especially in the south. So, Gage, how is it possible that you're telling me we have one faith? What brings us to a tough reality? That every building that has a sign that says church on it isn't necessarily the church. Now, before you get defensive and think this is the part of the sermon where Gage tells you the Presbyterians have it all figured out and everybody else is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there are pastors who will get in the pulpit this morning and seek to give a hope Other than Jesus. And if someone gets in the pulpit. And tells you. That you can hope in anything else. Other than the finished work of Jesus alone. For your salvation. They're giving you a false faith. And they're lying. We have one faith. And that's putting our trust. In the one hope of our one Lord and this is why we baptize this is why our confession calls it a sign and seal of our engrafting into Christ that's old English language to tell you that we are so united and founded on this one hope and one Lord and put our faith in his work alone to wash our sins We give that sign to our children in hopes that as we proclaim this one hope to them, both in our homes and here on the Lord's day, that eventually that proclamation will take root and they will have the one faith and the one hope of our one Lord. But it's also why we baptize those that profess faith, because we're showing what Christ has done in giving them the one hope. And washing their sins. And this is why Paul ends this passage the way that he does. Verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because of what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Planned in eternity past, we were rescued from our sins. We were rescued by the plan of the Father, the actions of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, because of that truth, we're called to walk in a certain way. Fitting and honoring to the rescue that we have been given. So we, one walk among one another knowing that we were made to both love and be loved. And we can't do that in isolation. Second, we see that the spirits help we need the spirit's help to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with one another in love as we live together, looking to Christ continually on how we do that. And lastly, we take seriously our charge to fight for and protect the unity of the spirit and the shalom that Christ has purchased by his blood and knit us together. And we're so united that we have one hope in Jesus and one faith that is laid out for us in the scriptures and one baptism that unites us to God. And to one another, resting in one God who is sovereignly over us, works through us, and in us for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May you please take our study today. Soak in the spirit. Help us to understand what you're calling us to help us to understand who we are and give us the strength and the power to walk in that reality. We love you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.